us. We thank you. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Next Sunday sermon is not going to be anything like the movie <laughs> trailer you saw. Oh, it was really good, right? Guess who did it? The one who's not speaking. <laughs> Jiming did it. Well, did I, did I tell you that my, uh, my son's dog has uh, his own Facebook and Instagram? Uh, this was what he posted recently. Why am I so cute? Why am I so cute? And... Uh, yeah, I know, my, my dog is narcissistic, okay? He loves himself. Um, you can think of another person asking, you know, why am I so handsome? And that's King David. King David, how, how do I know this? Because in 1 Samuel 6, um, 16, verse 12, it says, And now David was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. If you think that Richard Gere is handsome, then okay, lah, he's handsome. I can imagine King David posing this question, to his mother. Um, although you won't find this in the Bible, right, just an imagination, you also won't find uh, the name Nitzavet as, um, in, in the Bible, but according to Jewish traditions, this is the name of King David's mother. Okay, I think I better censor this picture in case uh, some of you find it uncomfortable to watch Michelangelo's idea of the ideal male physique. But how do you think Nizavet would have answered David? So on her behalf, let me try. Okay? She might have said, hey, come here, boy, come here, boy. You want to know why you're so handsome? Why your eyes so big? Uh, because you are tapting, because you are a mongrel, because you have mixed blood. Uh, let me tell you about Atai, which is great-grandmother in Cantonese. Atai was a moebites. Okay, David, that's not a disease. It just means that she comes from the tribe of Moab. Uh, and these people, they, they've got a really bad history. Um, what were the origins of Moab? Well, David, you asked a lot of questions. But anyway, Moab came from an act of incest. Okay, I'll explain incest another time. An act of incest between Father Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his daughter. In fact, his two daughters got Lot drunk and they raped him. Okay, I'll explain rape another time as well. And out of this came two tribes, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Now, I know it's a, it's a, it's a terrible story to tell a young child. But back to your great-grandma, your, your Atai, she was called Ruth, which means friendship. It's a beautiful name. And she married your great-grandpa, Boaz, after a very quick romance. After all, your great-grandpa's Boaz name means quick. And it was a mixed-race marriage between a Jew and a Moabite, Tess. And out came Obed, your grandpa. And from your grandpa Obed came Jesse, your father. And from Jesse came you, David. Okay, I'll stop trying to pretend to be David's mom here. It gets a bit confusing after a while. But before we get further into Ruth, we need to know one theological term. And that is called typology or types. And these are symbols, usually in the Old Testament, that prefigure what will happen in the New Testament. For example, Boaz is called a type of Christ, a type of Jesus Christ. She, uh, he being the second husband of Ruth, uh, Ruth's first husband died, and then he married Ruth, um, 
because he redeemed Ruth. We'll talk more about that later. Jonah. Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish as Jesus spent three days uh, before he was resurrected from, from death. And that is a type of Christ. Abraham. Abraham's sacrifice of his son Isaac prefigures or is a type of God's sacrifice of his son Jesus. And the Passover feast prefigures or is a type of the Last Supper. So that's typology. Now we want to talk about the three laws in the Old Testament that uh, is found in the book of Ruth. The law of gleaning, the law of the levirate marriage, and the law of redemption. Firstly, the law of gleaning. How did penniless Ruth and Naomi, her mother-in-law, two widows, survive when they returned from Moab to the land of Israel, to Bethlehem? They survived by gleaning. Okay, so what is gleaning? We look at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9. It says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. It's repeated in Leviticus 23. And I'll just read the last verse. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Repeated one more time in Deuteronomy 24. And verse 21, When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. So the law of gleaning, meaning that you can only pass through the harvest field one time and you don't grab everything possible. You leave some for the poor people to come after you to get food. And it shows the heart of God. Two weeks ago, we talked about the Hebrew word hasad, which means loving kindness. The loving kindness of God. Christos, the kindness of God. In the modern world, there is this uh, uh, practice that comes from the principle of gleaning also, found in um, charity and humanitarian groups which distribute gleaned food to the poor and hungry. So what is this gleaned food? It's when people collect food, let's say, from the supermarkets at the end of the day when they cannot sell it, and then they take it and they give it to the poor. Otherwise, it will be thrown away. In Singapore, I think there is this organization called Food from the Heart. They do the same thing. They collect bread from bakeries and then they give it to the poor. In America, they had to enact a law to allow this to happen. And it's called the Bill Emerson, the guy who introduced it. Good Samaritan Food Donation Act of 1996. So recent, 1996. You know why? Because in America, if you give, get this food from the supermarket or from restaurants, you give it to the poor, they eat it, they get sick or they get poisoned, then you'll be sued. So they have to have this law so that you don't get sued, except in extreme cases of gross negligence. Then you will get sued. Uh, I don't think Singapore has got this law yet. So that is... The law of gleaning, it is an act of kindness. Secondly, the law of the leveret marriage. Okay, leveret has got nothing to do with Levi. Okay, it, it comes from the Latin word lever, which means a husband's brother. And while researching into this topic, I found this movie. It's from the Hallmark Hall of Fame. You all know Hallmark, right? Hallmark has a lot of these so-called wholesome uh, movies that are sometimes quite boring. Uh, but it's wholesome. It's wholesome. 
So I came across this movie and I watched it on YouTube and I've left it there also. You can also watch it on YouTube. It's, it's free. And if you're a romantic like me, then you will enjoy this very ordinary movie with no big stars. Uh, but it's about a modern-day leverage marriage. Let me show you a clip. In this clip, Leah... <coughs> Leah <Leverage> marriage <laughs> so Hold it, hold it. <laughs> okay. Um, the lady is called Leah, so the movie is called Loving Leah. The lady's husband died, and the younger brother, Kana. Kana, the leverage marriage. So let's watch this. Deliberate marriage takes place between the childless widow whose husband has just died and the unmarried brother of the deceased. It's his obligation to marry her. So the brother's name will carry on. <laughs> You're kidding, right? He's kidding. Well, I, I, I can't. I'm in a relationship. I'm, I'm sorry, but... I mean, it's no offense, Leah, or to all of you, but I... Dr. Lever, we no longer practice this. However, to release both of you from your obligation, we have to perform a ceremony. Great. What do I have to do? You have to wait three months to see if Leah's pregnant. If not, we reconvene for the Khalitsa. That's the ceremony that will release Leah from the law. Okay, so that's what happens. Older brother dies and is childless. So in this case, they're very smart. They added on to the law. Uh, wait three months, okay? Make sure that the woman is not pregnant. So if she's not pregnant, that means they don't have a child. Uh, then the leverage marriage means that the younger brother must marry the widow of the dead older brother. And if the widow now gives birth, then this child will be considered the child of the dead older brother and will inherit the property of the older brother. I know, it's a very strange law. Okay? When I get to heaven, I'll ask God about it. But, but God is gracious, okay? God is gracious. There is a way out. The way out is called the Halitza. Halitza. So let's see how, how they get out of this. Okay. Now, Leah, repeat after me. My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother within Israel. My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother within Israel. He does not consent to perform the lever of marriage to me. He does not consent to perform the leveret marriage to me. You prefer to marry your sister-in-law or release her through the ceremony? Release her. Now go lean against the wall over there. Yeah, in your right hand, undo the loops on the chalitza shoe. Raise his leg. No, no, not so high. Now take off the shoe and cast it across the room. Put down his leg. Now lay up. Spit on the floor in front of Jacob. And I repeat after me, lay that is what shall be done unto the man that doth not build up his brother's house. This is what shall be done to the man that doth not build up his brother's house. Okay. Now let's read the Bible. Okay. Deuteronomy chapter 25 from verse 5. 
If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of a dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandals off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall say, she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal, sandal pulled off. Strange law. The life, why, why, why is it like that? Well, in ancient days, the, the life of a widow without children, it's a terrible life. It's a tough life. And she has no inheritance rights, she has no assets, and she had no one to care for her. And so she was easily exploited and frequently reduced to abject poverty and sometimes have to resort to, to prostitution even. And so the Bible lumps widows with orphans, with strangers or sojourners, in some translations, as the disenfranchised members of society to whom special kindness must be shown. Why? We read earlier the three passages, I am the Lord your God. Because I am the Lord your God, you need to show special kindness to the down and outs. And the, the performance of this leveret marriage was, was considered a truly magnanimous act on the part of the living brother. And because he was assuming obligations without deriving any corresponding benefits at all. It was purely an act of kindness, not only to the widow, but also to, to, to the, the dignity of his deceased uh, brother, so that his name will be perpetuated, so that the property will pass down the line to this son that he will have with the widow. So that's a leverage marriage. So gleaning, leverage marriage, and now the law of redemption. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 25. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. Well, for you and I, when we sell property, um, especially freehold property, when we sell anything, your, I don't know, your computer or your jewelry to somebody, the person who buys that piece of property will have it forever in perpetuity. But in Israel, it's different. See, when the land in Israel was granted in time of Joshua, if you read Joshua, that this tribe will get this land from where to where, where and another tribe will get this land from, from where to where, um, it is to be retained within the tribe, retained within the family. And that's why genealogies, uh, who beget who and who beget who, is so important because the property passes down the line. And when somebody sells a property to pay some debts or because they were poor, there are provisions in that sale for that land 
to be eventually returned back to this family. And these redemption clauses are typically written on the outside of the scroll that a relative of this poor family can redeem the, the property. And this relative is called the kinsman redeemer. And this relative will be obligated at his own expense to buy back the property, to redeem it, and to give it to, back to the poor relative so that he and his children and down the line can have that property. And if this nearest relative, this kinsman redeemer, refuses to do that, then the next nearest kinsman redeemer will take on this role of redemption. And the idea, the idea is to help those who either through misfortune or, or even bad decisions lose their property, like, like uh, Elimelech and Naomi, who sold their property, then they went off to Moab. It's a way for them to get out of poverty. The law of redemption to buy back to help the poor. So Boaz, who was not the closest relative, who was the second closest, the, 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 the kinsman redeemer, bought it back, redeemed that property, gave it back to Naomi and to Ruth. This is the act of redemption. Then I mentioned two weeks ago that there is a prophetic element also to this story of Ruth and redemption. And, and typology, remember, is a type that prefigures what uh, will happen. So understanding this will give better insight into Revelations chapter 5. So let's read Revelations chapter 5 from uh, verse 1 to 4. This is the Apostle John writing. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. That means written on the inside and the outside of the scroll. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look, or to look into it. It's a seven-seal scroll. That means, you know, wax, 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 and seal, 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 seven times. And it's written on the outside, which is kind of unusual. And it's written on the inside. And the Apostle John was weeping because the seals cannot be broken. Cannot be broken. And what was this scroll that is subject to redemption? That means you break the seals. Some have interpreted it. This is the title deed. This is a title deed when Adam forfeited his rule over earth that God gave him to Satan when he sinned and fell and therefore he sold mankind into slavery to sin and it's sealed. And so now comes the Lion of Judah, Revelation chapter 5, the Lord Jesus. He came and he broke the seal because he paid the redemption price, the buyback. He paid it with the sacrifice of himself, Jesus, the kinsman redeemer. So this short four-chapter story, and I hope that you've read this book uh, so that you can put all the pieces uh, together. It's kind of difficult for me to, to, to explain every part of the book, so do read it. This story of Ruth, I believe, addresses two very fundamental needs of man. Man's need for security and man's need for significance. Man's need for security 
that Boaz, Boaz is the relative, the kinsman redeemer, is a picture or a type of Christ. He protected Ruth, he restored her self-esteem, he guarded her honor, he did not embarrass her, he redeemed her, he gave her security. And found in Ruth is another poetic expression of this protection over Ruth. If you read Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, and, and this is Boaz telling Ruth, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Underline the word wings. It is the Hebrew word kanaf, K-A-N-A-P-H. Um, and it is like a blanket, under whose blanket uh, you are covered. And then in Ruth chapter 3, verse 9, again Boaz said, Who are you? And Ruth answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings. Same word, kanaf in Hebrew, over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So this word in chapter 2, verse 12, chapter 3, verse 9, is translated as wings or the border of your garment or the corner of your garment. or It's kind of like a blanket. It covers you. It's also found in Ezekiel 16. Uh, from verse 8, it says, this is God speaking, when I pass over, when I pass by you again and saw you, that is the children of Israel, behold, you were at an age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment. Corner of my garment, kanaf, same word, wings, over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. So I protected you, I covered you. Again, uh, again in Psalm 17, verse 8, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Same word, kanaf. And many more times in the Psalms, uh, this word wings is used, the shadow of your wings. It is a picture of protection. And so just as Boaz redeemed youth, uh, Ruth, Jesus redeemed us and he gave us his covering. We are now safe under the wings of Jesus. And not so much of who we are now, but whose we are. We belong to Jesus. We are his children. We are redeemed. We are secure. We are safe. And we are saved. So that's the security that God provides that we can see in Ruth, a picture. Secondly, man's need for significance. So the two fundamental needs of man for security, and that's found in salvation, that Jesus redeemed us. And secondly, for significance. And God knows that we need to have significance in our life. You know, our, our life's significance is still being worked out so long as you're you're alive, and even after you're dead, that is a story of our lives as God's children. And God is interested in this story. He knows that we need to have something to live in, and that is security, protection. And He also needs that we, have, we need to have something to live for. What is the significance of, of my life that we need this significance? That we might have a, a story to tell, whether to our grandchildren or, or, or somebody. A story of our interaction with God, our Savior. And it was Mark, Mark Twain, shortly before his death, he, he penned these words. He said, A myriad of men are born. They labor and sweat and struggle. They squabble and scold and fight. They scramble for little mean advantages over each other. Then age creeps up upon them. Infirmities follow. Those they love are taken away from them. And the joy of life is turned into aching grief. And they vanish from the world where they were of no consequence. 
a world which will lament them for a day and forget them forever. Is this what life going to be? Is that the story of a life? No significance. And then when you die, your people gather for the wake, just one night, or lamentations, and then after that, forgotten. Is that going to be life that's like no significance? Well, the Bible saw it significant to mention four women in the genealogy of Jesus even. And they are Tamar. Tamar in Genesis chapter 38 was part of a sordid story where she tricked her father-in-law, Judah, into having sex with her. And in case you think that Tamar is the bad one, it takes two to tangle. Okay? Judah from whom Jesus came, the Lion of Judah, the tribe of Judah, thought he was having sex with a temple prostitute and he went ahead and did it and out came that genealogy. Not such a great history. Second person was Rahab, mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Rahab was a prostitute. But she did a good thing in that she hid the spies from, from Israel. Ruth. Ruth is that penniless foreign worker. And Bathsheba, Bathsheba who had an affair with King David. So what, what a story that Nitzavet, the, the mother of David, had to tell David. And, and what a story that even Mary had uh, to tell her son Jesus. that Oh, Jesus, you came from all these people, you know. Not exactly a great lineage for David or for Jesus. It's kind of like this um, the story of this bank who had in mind this guy they wanted to employ as a bank employee who came from an elite school. So the bank wrote to the elite school for a testimonial or a character referee on this young man. And so the principal of that school wrote back this testimonial. He said, his father, Mr. Tan, is the head of a major bank. His mother is a famous concert pianist. And further back, he comes from a family that owned plantations all over Asia and from a long line of bankers in his father's side and on his mother's side. So when the bank received this, several days later, the bank sent a reply to the principal of this elite school. And the bank said, your testimonial or character referee was not at all useful. We are not contemplating using this young man for breeding purposes. We just want him to be a banker. So Boaz, Ruth, David, Jesus, they didn't come from this great lineage. They don't really have such a great history or story uh, to tell as, as far as lineage is concerned. And at the time of Ruth and Boaz, they, they absolutely didn't know that Ruth was going to be great-grandma of, of David. They were just living ordinary rural lives, farmers. But that, there was a God behind them working out His purposes. And I think when Ruth and Boaz, up to the point where they died, they didn't know where their story of quick romance would lead to. There's nothing. They were just farmers. But we know, because we have read Ruth chapter 4. We know where it led to. And God can give security and significance even to the most insignificant widow. And then they played a significant part in history. And this is a story of Ruth, the testimony of Ruth a testimony of God's love and grace, security and significance. And, and that's why I, I, for one, I never get tired of listening to the testimonies 
Uh, even those who say, oh, last week I was in Suntec City, I prayed to God, and I found a car park. <laughs> it's like, hey, that's a testimony. It worked for them. It worked for this person. It's their story. You can argue all day and all night about doctrines or the exegesis of certain verses in the Bible, but you cannot argue with a life testimony because this is your story. This is how you interpret God working in your life. In Revelation chapter 12, from verse 10, it says this, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ has come. For the accuser of the brothers have been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered Him, the accuser, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. It tells us that the word of our testimony and the blood of Jesus can throw Satan down, like, like you do a judo throw. So what is your story? What is your story? Your testimony? How did Jesus save you? What is life with Jesus like? Then just go, go tell it. In fact, now is a great season to go tell it just before Christmas. Why do you believe? Why do you go to church every Sunday? Why do you want to invite me next Sunday to Easter service? Psalm 9 verse 1 says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. So recount. Tell it. Psalm 40 verse 5, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward me. None can compare with you. I will proclaim. I will tell of them. Yet they are more than can be told. So go tell. Psalm 66 verse 16, Come in here, all you who fear God, and I will tell what He has done for my soul. Go tell. And then Paul, in two times in the book of Acts, in chapter 22 and 26, recounted his story of conversion. He was just telling. I was on the road to Damascus and then there was a bright light. He must have told it more times than that, I'm sure, as part of his witnessing, as part of his life story. But it's, it's recorded twice in the book of Acts. So go tell someone this week your story. Your story. It is powerful, no matter how mundane or, or seemingly boring it is to you because it is God's touch on your life. So coming to stories, let me tell you a romantic story that I was a part of. It was uh, September 2000, 15 and a half years ago. Some of you have not lived that long. I met a beautiful girl overseas and she showed me the first page of a love story she was writing. And then I told her, like that, cannot. Okay, you know what a love story must have? I told her, first there must be pain and tragedy, and suffering. And then comes a hero who overcomes all this. And then the two of them will ride off into the sunset and live happily ever after. Would you believe me when I say that this girl who wrote that first page that I met was called Ruth, which means beautiful friend? At that time, she was nine years old. And she's the little daughter of uh, our Seng Ing and Chuen Hui in the Philippines when I went to visit her. See, Ruth is a story for those who wonder where God is when one tragedy after another tragedy after another tragedy. About a story of three widows. Son died, whose husband died. Those who wonder if a life of integrity actually is worth it. Uh, 
many commentaries have said that Boaz was actually an old man, right? He was just being honourable and faithful and somehow the Lord never provided a life partner for him. And he waited and he waited until Ruth came along. That's why he acted so fast. And, and, and Ruth is a story for those who cannot imagine that anything great or significant will come out of their ordinary lives. I mean, just farmers and, and gleaners. And Ruth is a story of the hidden work of God in the toughest of times. You want to know what I think is the most romantic part of the story of Ruth? You know, in, in Chinese movies, uh, you get this girl playing very cold, and then she drops a handkerchief, and then the boy picks it up. Oh, sorry, this service, you all don't know what handkerchief is. Uh, <laughs> you really don't. Okay, I don't think it quite works if you drop a piece of tissue paper. Not quite the same, but anyway, go find out what handkerchiefs are. Okay. Um, so you can read in Ruth chapter 2, verse 15. I think this is the most romantic part. When Ruth rose to glean... Boaz instructed his young man, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some uh, from the bundles for her, and leave it there for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So instead of Ruth dropping her handkerchief, it was Boaz who commanded his men to secretly drop some food, drop some food all along the way, so that Ruth can go and pick it up. And who knows, among all the bundles of, of barley that they have accidentally dropped along the way, might there be a roti prata or two uh, to feed Naomi and to feed uh, uh, Ruth. And that's that, it's that secret act of, of kindness. William Cowper was uh, a famous uh, poet and who lived in the 18th century. Actually, he died just as the 19th uh, began. Uh, 1800, he died. And he wrote these famous uh, verses. God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rise upon a storm. Judge not the Lord by, by feeble senses, our feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. I think the main theme there is that don't judge too soon. Too early to judge God's work in your life and if Ruth and Naomi were judging their life as they came back penniless and just ended up as foreign workers just picking up scraps. Not yet. Not yet. Because behind the scenes, often in secret ways, there hides a smiling face. And that too was the testimony of William Cowper, the guy who wrote these uh, verses, who, who's famous for many hymns and poems. Um, at one time, uh, he was famous for writing anti-slavery poems. He actually worked together with John Newton. Uh, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. One of his hymns we are all very familiar with. Oh, I can't say this. Uh, one of his hymns we should be familiar with, a very old hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. Stains. Anybody knows this? Okay, I see not. Oh, that's good. That's good. Okay, so he's that famous, okay? He died in the 1800 and right now, we're still singing songs that he wrote. But William Cowper had a tough life. His mother died when he was six years old. And he says it shattered him. It really destroyed him mentally. And, and what's worse, he was bullied in school. And he, of all people, he, he fell in love with his cousin. And then he was told, you cannot marry your cousin. 
he was taking law and he was so stressed by the examinations that he became insane, they call it, and he was institutionalized in a mental institution where he made three suicide attempts. And then he got to know a pastor and a family, lived with them, got to know John Newton. They worked together on anti-slavery and hymns and all that. And he recovered somewhat from his mental illness. But after some time, he fell into depression again. And he died soon after. So did, John, did William Cowper live an insignificant life? In the year 1800, when he died, but his story has not ended yet because even today, his poems and his hymns are, are alive and they are continuing to inspire us. They're continuing to help us to render honor and praise and worship to God through the centuries. And how often do we feel like maybe the Apostle John in Revelations 5? It's like we are stuck in something that is sealed, seven seals, and it cannot be broken. We're just stuck in there. And there's no way out, no one to help us. How we wish somebody would come and just break that seal and break us out of this thing that, that we need someone to like, buy us back, to redeem us, to get us out of this redemption. Redemption. And there, the role of Jesus in redeeming us. Or that we feel that life is just so humdrum. It didn't turn out the way that, that I had hoped it would be, that by this time I ought to be a millionaire, I ought to have at least one Merc and one Beamer, and, and I ought to have many grandchildren, and, but it's not there, it's not there, and life is like a mess. Instead, I, I have death in the family. Uh, you're, you're, you're widowed, or you're a widower, and, and there is poverty and missteps or, or mistakes in life, and the wrong decisions for which you're still paying uh, the price, just like Elimelech and Naomi sold their property, went off to Moab, and continued to be poor, and come back to nothing. Or we feel like we are, we are second class, uh, we are, we are like looked down upon, or we feel that we are being looked down upon, either due to our race, or, or where you live, and you're not in District 10, ah, HDB flat only, uh, or the way you're dressed, or what kind of school you come from, just like, insignificant. My brother says, Sisters, let me tell you that it is not a hopeless end, that God is not done yet. With Him, we do have security. With Him, we do have significance. It is not a hopeless end. It is endless hope. When we turn to Jesus for security, for salvation, and we turn to Jesus for significance, for a story, for a testimony of what God can do in our lives, no matter how small, okay, it can start with just getting a car park lot. And because we have that security and we have that significance, we just live, okay, call it humdrum, okay? We just live a normal, grateful, faithful, kind life like Boaz did. Just filled with kindness. And God, indeed, He works in a mysterious way. It is not the end yet. And, and we are thankful that here in church, we can turn to the Lord Jesus. He is our Saviour. He is our provider and He is the one who pulls us out of uh, a broken life and grant to us a bountiful, uh, abundant life. So I'd like to play this um, 
song, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, is, is a modern rendition and I think it's just meaningful.
Let's pray together. Let's just open up our hearts to the Lord and give thanks, be grateful. And if there should be anyone here who has not received the security, the protection, the salvation that the Lord Jesus offers, let me encourage you to do so. Welcome the Lord into your heart. Ask Him to forgive us of our sins, cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and enable us to live a life that is holy and that pleases Him, a life of significance. But in spite of that, some of us do feel that it's still humdrum, not much hope. Is life just going to be like a farmer daily doing the same thing over and over again? It's not. How can it be when the Lord has promised life and life to the full? What does that mean? Even in the humdrum of daily living, there can be a significance much higher than that. Some we see, some we don't and some we won't until we meet Him face to face. So I want to pray for hope for each one of us. And that the Bible says, for whatever is, was written in former days was written for our instruction. That the book of Ruth was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And may the God of hope Fill us with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So continue trusting, continue believing that Jesus who saved us just doesn't, it's not like He made a clock and just left it there to work. He continues to intervene in our lives and we continue to pray, we continue to trust, continue to hope. So let's just be grateful, let's be faithful, and let's be kind. Father, I want to pray for everyone here. Lord, that your word will touch us, the story of the Bible, and the story of this one four-chapter part of the Bible will bring encouragement to our souls, will tell us that we have a security. We, we are eternally secured in Jesus. Will tell us that we do have a story that God continues to intervene in our lives, no matter how difficult or dark or even humdrum. We can call upon you. You answer our prayers. You lead us to greener pastures. You help us you move in a mysterious way. That years later, when we look back, we, we can see clearer the hand of God. But for now, we just want to trust the heart of God. Grant to us hope, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.